are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. Well, this morning, um, I, I'm really delighted to let you know that we've got a guest speaker, and it's Phil Sutherland, who leads a commissioned church, one of our sister churches, just down the road in Dorking. And I've had the real great privilege of getting to know Phil now over the last few years. Uh, we've done training together. We've uh, been at West Point. In fact, he was one of the first people that really helped me to really feel welcomed at West Point uh, when I first came to Guildford. And um, I just really want to commend him to you. He's just such a, he's so wise, he's so humble, and I know that he's going to absolutely bless your socks off this morning as, as, he, as you hear from him and you hear God speaking through him to us uh, as we continue our series in the Summer of Psalms. And so, um, Phil, why don't you come in? Uh, how you doing? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks, Chris. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, my name's Phil, obviously. I'm, I'm married to Helen. We've been married just over 30 years or so. And for much of that time, actually, we've been in Dorking. Yeah, yeah. And um, we planted a church there um, as part of New Frontiers 15 years ago. And um, we, uh, yeah, I have four daughters, three daughters, one son. And um, the daughters are all in their 20s now. And Charlie, my son, is 14. Brilliant. I'm really, I'm just so pleased, honestly, so pleased to have you with us today. And yeah, I know that, yeah, it's just going to be a great morning as you continue our series. Um, but before you get started, or before I pray for you, come on then, What's, what do you reckon the score's going to be? How are we going to do tonight in well, the game? I, I have to say, I'm notoriously pessimistic. And, um, but, but this time around, I don't know what's got to be, maybe it's, it's just all, all the hype or whatever, but I'm, I'm actually quite chilled. I'm going 3-0. 3-0? Yeah. Well, I went 3-0 against Germany and, yeah. and, it, and it was close and I'm, I'm now going 3-0, possibly 3-1. Oh. Right, there you go. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, you've heard it here first. 3-0, maybe 3-1. Come on, England, we can do this. But yeah, let's, let, let me pray uh, for you, Phil. Father God, I want to thank you so much for Phil. Thank you, yes, yeah, so much for his friendship. And uh, thank you for, yeah, for the church. Or thank you, Lord God, for all that you're doing in him and through him down in Dorking and, and for the wonderful church family. And I just pray, Heavenly Father, that, I, that you would fill him with your spirit. And to Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us as a church. Help us to open up our hearts to all that you would have uh, us, us hear and do and put into action from today. In your heavenly name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Folks, it's, it's lovely to be here with you this morning. I, I just really wish I could actually be with you. It would have been great to meet some of you. And um, rather than talking into a camera, which is slightly unusual, certainly this setup for me is a great setup, though. I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, but, but anyway, I, I hope that you um, appreciate and hear from God uh, through what I have to say and to share this morning and look forward to the opportunity to meeting you in person at some point. Let's look at Psalm 73 then. This is a psalm about how we handle jealousy, envy and resentment. There, that sets you up, doesn't it? It says, surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. 
I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And this is how the writer of the psalm, Asaph, then describes from his perspective of envy and jealousy how he sees the wicked. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink out waters in abundance and they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. Psalm 73 is a psalm about how we handle the fact that at, life, at, at times life can seem so unfair. Even when as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, we have the blessings and the promises of God overshadowing our lives. 
How do we handle it when we feel like that? Or perhaps more to the point, because we're all on the journey to maturity, how do we learn to handle that as we go through life? This is a psalm that shows us the way. It's a psalm written by, as I said earlier, a man called Asaph, who was one of King David's chief songwriters. And in it, he gives an account of the outrage that he felt as he compared his own circumstances with those of others. And what stokes the fire of his outrage even more is that it seemed to him that most of those who were prospering in ways that he wasn't were people who had turned their back on God, who did not follow his ways. This is a psalm that spoke to me as a teenage boy in such a powerful way that I seemed to spiritually grow a pair overnight. Now, for those of you who are not quite sure what I mean by that, it caused me to grow up and to become a man. So for me, Psalm 73 has become what it might be called a back pocket psalm that I need to have readily available when I start to lose my God-centred perspective on life. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to dig in a little into Asaph's state of mind and how he then ultimately came through it. And then I'll share something of my own story. So let's start with verse one. It's a really positive start. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. That's who he means by Israel, those who are pure in heart. After all his complaints, which fills the first half of this psalm, this is Asaph's conclusion. And he puts it right at the top so that everyone will know where this psalm is ultimately heading, despite all that he is about to say in the next 10 verses. Surely God is good to those who follow him, says Asaph in verse 1. But then he says this, but as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. His, his foothold, the, the solid ground of verse 1 on which his life stood, was that God is good to those who follow him. But he had clearly been through a time where he seriously questioned whether that was the case. And as he did so, he started to lose his footing. And in verse three, he shows us the pathway through which that loss of footing started to occur. He says this, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph had been struggling with life, clearly. It seems likely that from what he goes on to say that that partly involved poor health, maybe it was his own or maybe it was uh, family, loved ones, friends. It may even have been that, that one or two people close to him had died as a consequence of that. And it also seems from what he says that he was not a wealthy man, and that life was full of the kind of struggles that come with being poor. When life is hard, 
when there seems to be nothing but challenge and trouble, we can be very vulnerable, can't we, to the contrasting circumstances of those for whom life seems to be a blissful and untroubled stroll in the park. In his vulnerability, Asaph becomes consumed with the apparent cushiness of other people's lives and whether or not they deserved to have those circumstances. And it's the prosperity of those who don't follow God that actually almost sends him over the edge. Surely that's not how it's supposed to work. Surely I have the blessing of God on my life. Isn't that what he promises? Surely if God is good, then my life would be not only okay, but more than okay. People would be looking at me and saying, what is it that makes his life so great? And I will tell them that it's because I am faithful and pure in heart and God has blessed me because of that. But instead, he says, I have been faithful and pure in heart and it seems that God has ignored me, abandoned me. Why did I bother? This is exactly the point that he reaches in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. I might as well give up on God and follow the crowd. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you're feeling that now. Or maybe... Maybe you're not there yet, but you are aware that the comparative circumstances of other people's lives consistently stirs envy within you. When we are struggling and people around us seem to be prospering, whether we define prospering in material terms like houses or cars or jobs or holidays or clothes, or in terms maybe of personal attributes like personality or intellect or looks or health, or perhaps in relational terms like friends or a husband or a wife or a loving family. When we are struggling in those ways with the prosperity of others, we can become very vulnerable, can't we? And in that vulnerability, we can all too easily start to throw all kinds of accusations at others and question their motivations, their character, the merits of them having what they do have, just like Asaph does here. And even, and here's a key point, even if we are right in the questions of others that we are asking, it misses the point. Asaph's anger at the prosperity of the wicked was not a righteous anger. He was angry because they had what he wanted. He was jealous. He was envious. Imagine what it would have been like if actually he was 
prosperous. How angry then do you think he would have been about the prosperity of others or even their disdain for God? The psalm suggests not very, he'd have been okay. So how did Asaph come through this period of really what was self-absorbed despondency and despair? How did he emerge on the other side of his envy and resentment, renewed in his absolute conviction that God is good to those who are pure in heart, those that follow him? Well, let me tell you this. It didn't just come through other people telling him that God was good. We can be so good at that sometimes, can't we? Just telling people in dire circumstances, it's okay, God is good. It may be true, but quite likely it won't ultimately help them. It was incumbent on Asaph, he realised, as it is on us, to do something ourselves. And in verse 16 and 17, he tells us what he did. In the middle of his anger right in amongst his confusion and complaints when he is feeling most raw, he enters into God's sanctuary. He enters into the presence of God. I imagine him going into his room, shutting the door and kneeling before the Father and just letting it all come out. And as he does so, in his presence, he discovers something all over again. Know this this morning. If you know God, you have everything. He, him, just him, is the greatest treasure the greatest blessing that could ever come into your possession. And with that revelation, once you start to be grounded again on that truth, comes a second revelation. You can be the best looking, the healthiest, wealthiest, sportiest, cleverest, even the happiest person alive, and with friends and family that are equally healthy, wealthy and happy. But unless you have God, you have absolutely nothing of any lasting, eternal value. Your destiny will ultimately be loss and destruction. And the opposite is also true. You, you can be sick, poor, feel like you aren't good at anything, don't have many friends or even any friends or a loving family, struggle every day with the things of life. But if you know him, you are, even if you don't feel like it, among the wealthiest and healthiest people that have ever lived. You can't know that just because somebody else tells you. You must enter his sanctuary yourself and meet with him and make a habit of it and get to know the greatest treasure. This is a hard, 
hard lesson to learn in a world that is obsessed with everything except God. But as followers of Jesus, it is perhaps the most vital truth that we need to learn and to hold on to in this life. This was exactly Jesus' point in his parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl in Matthew 13. Once the man had found the treasure in a field, once the merchant had found the pearl, they both sold everything that they had because all that ultimately mattered was the new treasure that they had discovered for themselves. When our eyes are distracted by the world around us, when our circumstances of our life contrast starkly with the lives of others, we must learn to draw into his sanctuary, the presence of God, and focus our eyes on the pearl, the treasure of infinite value. I first started to learn how to do that when the Lord spoke to me nearly 40 years ago through this psalm. It was the first time that I was ever aware of God speaking directly through his word into my circumstances. Now, as I look back at my circumstances at the time, they might seem quite trivial. They are quite trivial. But the despair I felt was real. And the reality is that it was, a less, it was the lesson I learned that day. That, cha- that change in perspective that I gained, that Asaph gained here, that was the really big deal. Much more so than any actual resolution of the circumstances that I was in. So let me tell you the story of the ultimately unrequited love of a teenage boy. As a teenager, I lived in a small village in North Essex near the Suffolk border, the kind of place that tended to support either the tractor boys of Ipswich or the bubble blowers of West Ham. And as a Liverpool fan since the age of seven, I kind of never really fitted in. I also didn't really fit in when it came to God. I had believed in God for as long as I could remember. And as a little boy, I I had a sense of what I would now describe as a a call on my life. It, It didn't mean that I actually knew what the gospel meant or whatever, but I had this definite belief in God. But apart, apart from Christian parents, I had no friends through those years that would ever call themselves Christians. Most of them had little or no interest in anything that might be described as religious. And then there were girls. I was never very successful in the girlfriend department. This was in very stark contrast to one of my older brothers who somehow seemed to manage to go out with all the girls that every other guy in the school would have wanted to, but knew that they would never have stood a chance. So in the end, I I had to move down a year a group or two, if you know what I mean. Uh, And I ended up going out with two girls in the year below me whilst I was at school. The first one lasted four days, which included a weekend when we didn't see each other. Uh, And the second amazingly lasted two weeks, although she was unwell and off school for most of that time. 
the reality is that, that while, of course, I was, I was very interested in theory and I, and I, I didn't mind learning what a good snog was about, I, I, I found out that there was nothing else I was interested in. I either wanted to play football or talk football with my mates or, or talk politics or music or God or life, and, and they didn't. I, and I'm not sure which of us found the other less interesting. And then, and then when I was 17, my mum and dad went on holiday to a, a Christian community and guest house in North Devon called Lee Abbey. It's, some of you may, may know of it. And they, they deposited me into a youth camp there for two weeks. It was the most transforming two weeks of my life. There were other people my age there who loved sport and music and mucking around, but they also loved God. And there was worship and there was Bible teaching and there was prayer and discussion and there were campfires and we sang Kumbaya many, many times. And I'm really making you jealous now, aren't I? And I loved absolutely every minute of it. And there was a girl. And for the first time, I fell totally in love with a girl. And remarkably, she seemed to have an interest in me. She was clever and funny and beautiful. And by the end of two weeks, I was utterly smitten. I was utterly smitten by her and I was utterly smitten by God. I had really grasped the gospel for the first time and I gave my life wholeheartedly to him. I had never felt so good. And then we came to the last day. Did I have the courage to tell her how I felt? I was generally a pretty shy lad. Would she say anything to me? And what if I did say anything? She lived in South Wales. I lived in North Essex. I loved football. She loved rugby. Was there any way this could ever work? In the end, despite us spending the whole of the last day together, sometimes just on our own, neither of us said anything other than that we promised we would write. Now, for those of you who are millennials or, or Gen Zs, when we promised to write, that meant you literally had to write what was known as a letter with a pen on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope. Now, now Google that if you don't know what one of those is and put a stamp on it and shove it in a letterbox. You may want to Google those things as well. Anyway, I, I went home and told my friends and family that I'd become a Christian, that I'd given my life to God. I gave up my Saturday job because all I did was spend the money on booze at pubs and parties, no ID cards in those days. And I switched playing football from Sundays to Saturdays so that I could help out at our, at our woefully dull and struggling village church on Sunday mornings. And we did right. Every one or two weeks, I would get a letter through the door covered in all kinds of stickers and smiley faces, and in our letters, we would joke and reminisce about our time together and look forward to the next summer because we'd already both booked into the camp again. And then, in the spring of the following year, the letters started to become less frequent. 
maybe about once a month. And I started to realise that they were really just as a response to my letters, but somewhat delayed. And in her letters, she started to talk about other friends in her church youth group and what a great time they were having. And there was one name in particular that seemed to me to crop up more than any other. Mark. <laughs> Mark. I'm sorry if your name is Mark, but I went off that name completely <laughs> in those months. And what really made my heart sink was that her enthusiasm for going back to the youth camp seemed to be reducing more and more the closer that we got to it. I started to have a growing foreboding about the time that I was looking forward to more than anything I could remember. And when I arrived on that Saturday afternoon in August, I saw on the list that she was already there, but she was nowhere to be seen and was clearly not hanging around for my arrival as I would have been for hers. And when we did finally meet, there was kind of like a quick hug and little more, and, and actually just really an embarrassed silence. I can tell you, my heart was breaking. The next day, we did spend some time together, but only in a group of other friends. And to be honest, I just felt like a hanger-on. Her older sister happened to be around, almost as some kind, I'm pretty sure of this, as a chaperone for her. Several times she mentioned in general conversation that she really hadn't wanted to come, but had booked in, so her parents had told her that she had to. And once or twice the name of Mark was mentioned. I tell you, it was the most miserable day of my life. Like I say, trivial in hindsight as I look back, but anything but trivial at the time. I felt like I had been betrayed, set up. I started to wallow in the injustice and unfairness of it all. How come my brother got all the girls? Couldn't he have just shared them around a little bit? How come I had no Christian friends at home, no youth group? Why did I have such a dull and lifeless church at home when everyone else at the camp seemed to rock up in great crowds from lively churches with great worship, great Bible teaching, why had God let me down so badly? A teenager in the depths of despond is something to behold, isn't it? I, I've had four of them, still have one, and believe me, it is. That evening, I sat on my own next to a wooden cross on the field where we were camping, looking out over the sea. It was a glorious sunset and you almost couldn't wish for a greater contrast between the peace and beauty of that scene and the raging misery and bitterness going on inside me. And I happened to have my Bible with me, mainly as a message to others. You know what it's like, don't come and join me. I've got my Bible, That's, it's just me time and God. You know, the whole thing was a charade, but it was just as a protective means. I'm on my own and I want to be on my own. Anyway, I, I opened up my Bible to give some credence to this charade. And it happened to fall open at this psalm, Psalm 73. And I was immediately drawn 
to these words, starting in verse 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. And I remember sitting there, actually lifting up my hand, saying, God, would you please hold me by my right hand? You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my, and I kind of felt at the time, broken heart and my portion forever. And as I read those words for the first time, I felt the personal rebuke and the loving faithfulness of God all wrapped up in one. I had fallen in love the previous summer and that love had led on to all kinds of hopes and desires about the future. And they had seemingly all been dashed. And while I may not have articulated it in exactly these words at the time, there was no doubt in my mind that God's question to me was this. Who did you fall in love with last year? Was all that excitement about becoming a Christian really about her? Or was it about me? The Lord had just brutally exposed the answer to that question. It was mainly about her, with a little bit of him on the side. And for the first of many times in my life, I came to understand that as long as we treasure other things, or other people more than we treasure him, we will leave ourselves vulnerable to loss and feelings of envy, of jealousy, of resentment, and quite possibly bitterness. For our sake and for the sake of his glory, we can never run after the things of this world and know his love and peace in our hearts. In his kindness, his kindness, he will use any and all circumstances in our lives to expose the duplicity of our hearts. And when he does so, it will often feel as though we have suffered a great injustice, as if life isn't fair, as if God isn't prospering us in the way that he should. And when God exposes the motives of our hearts in those moments, we must be ready to repent. To come into his presence, into his sanctuary, as Asaph did. To put our hands in his and acknowledge once again, he is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. He is the only one that can ever really satisfy our desires. Folks, and I'm just drawing to a close here. 
I've had to put what I learned that day as a distraught teenage boy into practice time and again through my life. There have been many times when I have felt envy or jealousy starting to grow in me. And when I've had to dig out Psalm 73 again and ask myself, where's that coming from? Is the outrage that I'm starting to feel towards others a godly outrage? Or is it driven by the fact that my hopes, my desires, my expectations have been rooted in someone or something other than God himself? Unless we're willing to be rebuked and counselled and corrected by him, we will lose our way in it. We may not always rebel, but if we allow envy and resentment to grow, we may find our hearts just becoming harder and harder and our joy in him being steadily extinguished. So I'm going to want to ask you this this morning. Have you lost your love for the treasure that is God himself? Are you struggling with the contrasting circumstances of life? Are you feeling that God has given you a raw deal? Are you envious of the prosperity of others and embittered by your comparative poverty? Can I urge you today, today, to draw into his sanctuary, his presence, and allow God to renew your desire for him, to realign your perspective, and to know that there is no greater treasure in heaven or on earth as knowing him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Sometimes your kindness doesn't feel like kindness. But Lord, if we will be prepared to let your spirit lead us through any and every circumstances, we will always discover that it is kindness. Because your spirit within us through those times always leads us to you. And so, Lord, this morning we want to worship you. Lord, where you have spoken into our hearts, Lord, I pray we may be ready and willing to respond. Lord, help us always to want to keep learning. Lord, we know that we need to keep learning. Lord, as we mature, we find that we are more and more satisfied in you and not seeking satisfaction from the things in the world around us. So, Lord, we want to honour you, put you right at the centre again this morning. Lord Jesus, Father in heaven. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchguildford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.